Welcome to Roadside, where we talk about the fascinating and sometimes disturbing history behind roadside attractions and unique destinations. Hello. Hello. And here we are. Here we are, back again. Back again for an Abigail episode, and I am so excited. Oh my goodness. About this episode. I am, I got so deep into this, this is going to be our first two-part episode. It is going to be a two-parter. Yes, for Alrighty. sure, for sure. I'm very excited. All right. But before we get into that, what's up with you, Mom? Oh, what's up with me? I'm Janica, by the way, for those that may have not heard us before. She is Janica. And I'm her mother. I'm Abigail. Nice to meet you. What's up with me? I have been working a lot. Same. On various projects. Yeah, uh, She blew up on TikTok, so that's exciting. <laughs> She gained a bunch of followers because she was posting about how she redid the countertops at her house, and they look really cool, and everyone was like, oh shit, that's really cool. So they all started following her, and now she's like super popular and famous. Well, super popular. (laughs) It was pretty exciting, but you know. Anyways, go follow Janica on TikTok. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Janica Lee 22 could also follow me if you wanted to, abigail.jade. I am not as super popular. And follow Roadside Podcast. Do that, too. Awesome. There you go. I don't think I have any news, really. No? Everything's kind of just been the same in the past week. I've just worked a lot, hung out with some friends. Nice. That's about it. Yeah. It's been a pretty good week. Good. Yeah. So are you ready? No. Okay, I'll give you a minute. Oh, excuse me. I gotta get my head in the game here. Yeah. Get your, get your head in the game. Get your, get your <laughs> Shout out to Troy Bolton. Aww. My childhood crush. My Zach. My Zach. Yeah, mom is obsessed with uh, Zach Efron. She has a cardboard cutout. Yeah. And oh, um, he's my boyfriend. She also has she also has a shirt with his face on it. I do. She named one of her cars Zach after him. Oh, I yeah. Zach was Zach a Zach was a car. good car. Zach yeah. was a real good car. Yeah. Bad gas mileage, but you know. Yes, but Zach was good for road trips. Yes. Very good. My Zach was a GMC Acadia and great. It's lots of room. Loved it. Three rows, but I also had room. Like I could put it down, have plenty of room for luggage. So when Abigail and I just went cross country, basically to, mm-hmm. well, not totally across the country, but we went to Salt Lake and Colorado and we did a road trip and um, it was in a little Ford Fusion. So yes, it was. Not not Very as different. not as good as my Acadia for road tripping, but much better on gas mileage because my Fusion yes. is also a hybrid. Yes, but it was good. It was good enough for two people. It was enough for two people. Yes, but then when we went to Portland, because we did not drive to Portland, Mm-mm. we flew. We rented a car, and then we went to go see all the Twilight things, which I'm sure we've brought up before a million times. <laughs> Recommend. Because, of course, we were seeing all of the Twilight things, we had to listen to the Twilight audiobooks. Oh my gosh, that was so fun. <laughs> Listening to the audiobooks as we were driving through the Pacific Northwest. Yes. With all the trees and driving along the coastline and like hearing Bella's story while we were in Forks and being able to see like where she worked and the house. And it was so cool. Yeah, that was and really cool. And that was all made possible from Audible. Yes, who is our sponsor? Yes, recommend. If you don't have Audible already, you can get a subscription. You should get it. Yes. And you can get 
30 days free if you go to our link, audible.com slash roadside. Do it. Recommend. I like audiobooks more than physical books, so. You can listen to all of the Twilight books. And like millions of other. <laughs> can they listen Can they listen to our podcast on Audible? Yes, they can. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know Audible did podcasts. Maybe yeah. I did know that. Well, because we talked about that last time and I said, I think that's how grandma's listening to us. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. I just have a bad memory. Sorry, guys. It's all right. Audible has podcasts and then they also have thousands of audiobook titles as well. Yeah, like a lot, a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. A lot, a lot. (laughs) So recommend. It's so much easier to listen to an audiobook while you're like doing the dishes or something. Or driving across country. (laughs) Or driving across country. Yeah, that's what we did. Yes. Okay. I think I think I got my head in the game now, so. Let's get into it. I am so excited. All right, let's go. All right. All right, what we got? Today's episode, we are covering the notorious... Island of Alcatraz. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So in case you don't know, Alcatraz is an island right off of uh, the coast in San Francisco. And we are going to get into it. I'm going to talk about the history of the island first, and then we'll get into the prison itself. Alrighty. So the island of Alcatraz was first mapped and, quote, discovered by Spanish explorer Juan Manuel Diela. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. In 1775. Oh, he's going to be mad at you. Well, he's dead, so. <laughs> Which I say, quote, discovered because there are definitely people who have discovered the island before this guy. Okay. But he was the first one that mapped it out. Got it. Ayla named the island after the Spanish word. It looks like Alcatraces, but I don't think that's how it's pronounced. Okay. So, apologies. But it means pelicans. So that's fun, because oh. there was a lot of pelicans on the island. He was like, yeah, Pelican Island. That makes sense. For a while, the island sat unoccupied until 1850, when President Millard Fillmore ordered the island to be looked at for a potential military reservation. Hmm. Because the land was super rocky, there was lots of big cliffs, and obviously it's like in the middle of the ocean, so it's pretty hard to get to, and hard to build stuff on. But they were like, you know what? This might be good. So at the time in 1850, San Francisco was thriving with like the gold rush and everything. And it was like the greatest port on the Pacific coast. But it was still without coastal defenses. So that's why they were looking at it for a military base. So in 1854, Congress appropriated $500,000 to build a fortress on top of the island. And they installed more than 100 cannons in the fortress, making it the most heavily fortified military site on the West Coast. Hmm. But the island had never never encountered a battle. Alcatraz was also home to the first operational lighthouse on the West Coast. Oh, really? I know. I didn't know that either. I think that was pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. So whenever it was completed, the island held a lot of stuff. Held a carpenter shop, a blacksmith shop, two storehouses... Stables, a mess house, laborers' barracks, mechanics' barracks, an office building, powder house, and a huge water tank, and obviously the fortress itself. Hmm. So they got a lot of stuff on there. How, how big was this island, did you say? I didn't. I actually don't know. Let me Google it right now. Okay. <laughs> it just sounds a lot bigger than what I had thought it was. Oh, no. It's, it's really big. It's 22 acres. 
Oh, oh, well, that's not, I'd say that's bigger than I thought it was, but it's not enormous. No. Okay. So 22 acres. Got it. And in the late 1850s, they started housing the very first military prisoners in the fortress, and that eventually became its purpose was a prison. During the Civil War, the island housed Confederate sympathizers as well as citizens accused of treason. So that's kind of interesting. It was involved in the Civil War. Yeah. Alcatraz also, unfortunately, housed several, quote, rebellious Native Americans, Mm. including 19 Hopi people who were sent to prison over land disputes with the government, which basically just means the government was like, hey, can we have your land? And they were like, no, we're good. And they were like, okay, we're going to arrest you and take it anyways. So that's what happened. Ugh, gross. In 1909, the fortress was torn down and a new military prison was built by the actual prisoners. The prisoners were forced to build this huge new mm. military prison on their own. Interesting. That prison was completed in 1911 and it is the building that is still there and is known as The Rock. Okay. According to the National Park Service, this building was the world's largest reinforced concrete building at the time. Hmm. So, you know, fun fact. Yeah. The army used the island for more than like 80 years until 1933 when the island officially became property of the Department of Justice for use by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So whenever it was turned over to the Department of Justice, the government decided that this would be a maximum security prison only for the worst of the worst. Because it's out in the middle of the ocean. It's near impossible to get to unless you have a boat. And because it's on so many rocks and cliffs and stuff, it's pretty hard to navigate. This also served the purpose of showing the public that the government was really serious about stopping the crazy amounts of crime in the 1920s and 30s. However, the city of San Francisco did not like this idea. They were not pleased that the worst criminals in the U.S. would be brought right to their city. So there was a lot of protests and a lot of articles basically just, like, shitting on the idea. Hmm. And there was fear that the prisoners would escape by swimming or stealing boats. And two women at the time, actually, Doris McLeod and Gloria Scigliano, both made separate and successful attempts to swim to and from the island just to show everybody that it could be done. Wow. I know. Those are some bad bitches. Those are some badass women. Mm-hmm. I love them. I do, too. I hope that they're resting peacefully. Y- yes, me too. But all protests ended up being for nothing, and the government just kind of went along with it anyways. The maximum security prison officially opened July 1st, 1934, and its first warden was James A. Johnston. Each prisoner had their own cell, and there was about one guard per three prisoners... The Federal Bureau of Prison called Alcatraz the prison system's prison. Okay. Basically, that's where all the bad people go. Yeah. The worst of the worst. Inmates at Alcatraz had very few privileges and were only sent back to the normal federal prison if they learned how to follow Alcatraz's strict rules. Prisoners were not allowed visitors in the first three months of being in the prison, and after that, only one visitor was allowed each month. Mail privileges were also very limited. No original letters were to be given to the inmates, only typed copies. Why? I don't know. Maybe, like, if in case there's some, like, secret code or... Huh. I don't know. Okay. But All they right. would just take the letters and they'd have to type them out before they could give them. What a job that is. I know. <laughs> no <Okay>. idea. <laughs> right. um, but magazines, newspapers, radio, 
Anything entertainment was prohibited. This was where you went if the normal prison system couldn't handle you. Hmm. The prison typically held about 260 to 275 inmates, which is actually less than 1% of the entire federal inmate population. Wow. I know. So it doesn't seem like it's a lot of people there. Yeah. But they're, yeah. So Hmm. that's like the history behind it. I found this really good website. I think it's liter- it's just called alcatrazhistory.com. Okay. And if you want to go look it up, they have so many details. Like 20 to 50 pages of history behind wow. Alcatraz that gets very in-depth. So if you want to know more, I recommend you go to there. But this was just kind of the basic history. And now we are going to get into the famous inmates. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so the Bureau of Prisons wanted to give zero information about who was going to stay at the prison. They didn't want anybody to know because they didn't want like the city to freak out. They didn't want any kind of bad press or anything. But in January 1934, the San Francisco Chronicle announced that some of the first prisoners to arrive would include Al Capone mm. and George Kelly or Machine Gun Kelly. Oh, okay. Along with several other high-profile criminals. And no, Machine Gun Kelly is not the... The band. The, the singer dude. The really... <laughs> the... Not that one. He just named himself after that. Yeah. To one of my closest friends, Liv. I'm sorry, don't listen to this next part. Machine Gun Kelly sucks. Okay? <laughs> Anyways. Sorry, Liv. Love you. Heart. Anyways... And here I thought Machine Gun Kelly was a band. No, it's just one guy. I pay no attention. I don't know. Yeah. I think him and Megan Fox are like married now or something. I don't follow the She could do better, but famous whatever. people very much. I don't really either. I only do because uh Liv is like in love with him. Ah. Uh, and Liv is one of my closest friends. I'm so sorry, Liv. Yes. This is just how it is. <laughs> this is my podcast. I get to say what I want. <laughs> Anyways, so Al Capone. We're going to get into some Al Capone history because absolutely fascinating. And then we're going to talk about his stay at Alcatraz. Okay. His full name is Alfonsi Capone. And he came to the U.S. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) He came to the U.S. as a young boy in 1894 with his family from Naples. And he pretty much started getting in trouble right from the start in his teen years. And as a young adult, eventually became part of the mob. He worked for Frankie Yale and Johnny Torrio, who were two of the most notorious gangsters of the age. But eventually, when both of them were killed, he became the man in charge. So he opened brothels and gambling spots and was very involved in bootlegging because this was Prohibition time. Mm -hmm. At this time, it was believed that he was making over $100,000 per week. Uh, okay, that's a lot now, so... Mm-hmm. How much was that then? Let's Google. <laughs> oh. Okay, so he was basically making uh, $1.5 million a week. Holy shit. Yeah. So this was a very, very powerful man. Yeah. And he was involved in, obviously, a lot of crime. But along with this, he also did a lot of really, really positive things for the city of Chicago. 
He opened up soup kitchens to feed the poor. He made regular trips to City Hall to talk to officials about policies and stuff that he think needed to be better. And he even lobbied for there to be expiration dates on milk bottles to ensure the safety of the city's children. Oh, really? So he did some pretty good things. That's However, that does not outweigh no. the bad stuff that he does later on. No. But because of this good stuff towards the beginning, the public saw him as like a hero. And they thought of him as the modern day Robin Hood. Hmm. So everybody in the city knew him. And they were like, yeah, Al Capone, whoop, whoop. This didn't last very long. And despite this, the police were very obviously still after him and began raids and setting intentional fires to his businesses. Mm. And it didn't take very long before the public turned on him because he did some bad stuff, obviously. Right. The public turned on him when it was presumed that he had set up the murder of a local prosecutor. And this prosecutor was actually trying to pin Capone with a different violent murder of a rival gang member. And Capone didn't like that, obviously, so he killed the prosecutor. I mean, it's an easy solution, you know. Yeah, you know, that's just how it is. We don't like what somebody's doing. Just kill him. No, don't do that. Don't do that. That is not advice. Don't kill people. Bad choice. Don't do it. Don't do it. So by 1929, uh, his empire was worth over $62 million. Damn. And that was $62 million at the time. Right. So that's about $1 billion. Okay. Just about. Ooh, I need that money. Anyways, it's just crazy to believe that people had that kind of money. Yeah. Or have that kind of money right now. That's right. You want to give me some? (laughs) So he became increasingly more violent throughout the years. So when, when Capone was young, he... Ended up contracting syphilis from one of the many prostitutes that he was with. Lovely. I believe they're actually considered sex workers now. Yes, correct. Sex workers. That's just what the website had said. Right, yeah. So he had some symptoms for a little bit, and then they went away. And he was like, oh, I'm cured. So he never went to the doctor or anything about it. Oh, okay. But he still had syphilis in his body. Right. And as he got older, it started to affect his brain and his anger issues and he got more and more violent and this is why really and the violence yeah i didn't know syphilis would affect them would affect somebody that way yeah it was it was pretty interesting that's actually what he ended up dying of really Mm -hmm. Hmm. so his crazy violence reached its peak on valentine's day 1924 this is going to contain some yucky stuff guys okay prepare yourself Trigger warning, murder. Obviously. During this time, Capone was at war with one of the city's other top gangsters, Bugs Moran. That's pretty cool. (laughs) I mean, Bugs wasn't cool, but like, that's a cool name. Right. So Capone gave the order that Moran be killed even if he had to kill all of his men to get up to him. Oh. Yeah. So Capone's men and him set up a trap for some of Moran's men. Moran's men were told that some liquor was being sold for pretty cheap and to meet at this certain location for a deal. And whenever Moran's men arrived, they found Capone's men, who were dressed in stolen police uniforms. Oh. So they didn't know that these were Capone's men. Right. So they had orchestrated this fake raid and... 
the Capone's men, the police, told Moran's men to get on the ground, face the wall, they would that they would handcuff them and arrest them. So they were like, God damn it, like we just got caught, we're about to get arrested, like so they got on their knees, they faced the wall, but instead of arresting them, Capone's men just opened fire and killed all seven of them. Oh god. And none of these people were Bugs Moran. So Capone was not happy after the end of it. Yeah. He just killed seven people, and none of them were who he wanted to kill. Right. So this very obviously gained national attention. I mean, it's still known today as the Valentine's Day Massacre. Once this did gain national attention, an undercover operation to capture Capone was started. And it took five years before they could arrest Al Capone. So they arrested him, and he was imprisoned for tax evasion. Yep, I did know that. (laughs) Yep. Even though he has several crimes that were much worse than tax evasion, they didn't want to charge him for any of his more serious crimes because they were so scared of him. Mm. And because he had so many connections that they thought if they charged him for murder or any of the other crazy things that he had done that he would get someone to basically kill all of them. And so they were, like, literally scared for their lives. So they were like, you know what? We're going to get him on tax evasion. Hmm. So he was sentenced only to 11 years. And on May 4th, 1932, Capone began his sentence in Atlanta, Georgia. And he was notorious for getting anything he wanted inside prison. Oh, jeez. He continued to run his illegal businesses from inside prison, and he actually convinced many of the prison guards to start working for him. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, what is, the, what is the point of him going to prison if that's what's going to happen? And apparently he kept large amounts of cash in his cell and would generously tip the guards who would do his bidding. And that's how he would get him on their, on his side. Of course. He had all the money. He, he didn't have to worry oh about that. Oh my God. That. He had a billion dollars. <laughs> like, He'd do whatever he wants. Yeah. And I saw a picture of Al Capone's cell at the time yeah. when he was in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh my God. It is the fanciest cell I've ever seen. Oh, really? He has, yeah, he has like the bed on the right side in these really fancy, lavish bedding bedding stuff. This beautiful wood desk. There was lamps and rugs and there was a radio. He had so many expensive furnishings and stuff Jeez. that no other inmate had because he got special privileges. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. So this was very obviously a problem. That's not what they want. Right. So the eternal general, eternal, eternal general. Attorney? Uh, anyways, yes. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like the eternal, eternal general. Eternal general. That sounds like a, uh, like out of a sci-fi movie, you know? <laughs> yes. So the attorney general and the head of federal prisons made sure that Capone would get the treatment he deserved and arranged for him to get sent to Alcatraz. Mm. Even though he was sent to Alcatraz, this did not stop him trying. During his initial orientation, him and several other inmates were lined up to greet the warden and get their prison numbers and everything. And the warden said that when Capone was in the lineup, he could see him like grinning and laughing and making comments under his breath to the other, the other inmates. And as soon as it was Capone's turn to step forward and receive his prison number from the warden, he tried really hard to, like, buddy up to the warden mm-hmm. and make himself look really cool and, like, a leader in front of everybody else. 
but this was this was Warden Johnston, and he was like, no, absolutely not. Hmm. And he made several attempts to get Warden Johnson, Johnston, sorry, to give him special privileges. Every single one was denied, and the warden maintained that Capone would be treated like every other prisoner. Nice. And he was. He was treated like every other prisoner. He got no spe- special privileges from in there. Good. And eventually, Capone just gave up on trying to get this kind of stuff, and one day he even made the comment to the warden, quote, it looks like Alcatraz has got me licked, end quote. Huh. Alcatraz, you know, if it can, if it can tame Al Capone, this is, this is where you go to get your soul crushed. <laughs> Just saying. I don't want to go there. Okay, then don't. Okay. Cool. I would love to go see Alcatraz someday. Well, I mean, I don't want to be a prisoner there. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> I don't want to get my soul crushed. Yeah, that would suck. Right. So that's Al Capone. Okay. And now we are going to talk about George Machine Gun Kelly. Okay. One of the other most famous inmates of Alcatraz. So he was born George Kelly Barnes. And he was born on July 18th, 1895 to a very wealthy family in Memphis, Tennessee. And apparently he just, he had a very average child, uneventful. His family grew him up in like a traditional household. He never really got in trouble. Until he went to Mississippi State University in 1917. While he was there, he received a lot of write-ups, he got in trouble with faculty, and he was just overall not a good student. And he also, at this time, met Geneva Ramsey. And he was instantly in love. Mm. He loved her so much, and he made the rash decision that he was going to quit school and he was going to marry her. So they had two children, and he worked as a cab driver at the time in Memphis. However, the money from this job was not enough to provide for his family. By the time he was 19, he was without a job and separated from his wife and kids. Oh. Yeah, pretty sad. So this is when Kelly began working with a small-time gangster and began bootlegging. Mm. And he loved this job. (laughs) He was getting all the money. He was getting all the notoriety. He He loved it. He had a great time. He was obviously arrested several times for illegal trafficking, and soon decided to move west with his new girlfriend. Mm. So, you know, I don't know anything about what happened to his wife and kids. Okay. Nothing ever came up again, so I'm pretty sure he just, like, left. Just left them there, yeah. Yeah. So when he moved west with his new girlfriend, this is when he decided to adopt the name George R. Kelly. He became, like, fairly well-known throughout this community out west, and he was making quite a bit of money. He was arrested several more times and then moved to Oklahoma City, where he met up with another gangster and a bootlegger named Steve Anderson. Okay. However, Steve Anderson had this mistress, and her name was Catherine Thorne. And Kelly, who I guess had left his girlfriend in the West, immediately was in love with Catherine Thorne. And a little bit about her. She was a criminal herself. Oh. She had been arrested several times for robbery and uh, sex work, and she was twice divorced, and her husband, her second husband, was found very mysteriously dead. Hmm. Interesting. Apparently, his death was deemed a suicide, but many people, including investigators, believe that she had something to do with it. Mm. And this is because a couple days before his death, she made a comment to a gas station attendant that she was going to kill her husband. Oh my gosh. But she was never convicted of that. 
it was deemed a suicide. All right. But like, girl, if you're going to kill your husband, don't tell people that you're going to kill your husband. Right. Don't just go out and tell people, especially some random worker at a gas station. Yeah. If you don't want to get caught, don't do that. Actually, it's actually a really good idea. You should tell everybody (laughs) if you're going to kill somebody. That way you can get caught and not kill somebody. Yeah. Just don't kill people. Yeah. That's the first one. Right. For rule number one. Rule number one, don't kill people. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure that's in like the Ten Commandments somewhere. So it's like a pretty big rule. Somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's pretty big. It's pretty big. So Kelly and Catherine fell in love so fast. It was very fiery passion. And they were married in September of 1930. I don't know how because I think he was still married to Geneva. I don't know. Whatever. Hmm. They were married. Interesting. And Catherine apparently had a lot of influence over Kelly. And before he had met her, he wasn't really, like, that big in the crime world. He had done some bootlegging and stuff like that, but he wasn't as big as some of these other gangsters. Okay. She bought him a machine gun (laughs) and said, this is my gift to you, and pressured him really hard to practice with it. Oh my gosh. And she would even try to sell his services to the underground world and the public. Literally just be like, hey, you need somebody killed? I got a husband. What the fuck? And whenever she would go out to these illegal drinking clubs, she would bring spent cartridges and hand them out as souvenirs from her husband, who she now called Machine Gun Kelly. This woman is... She is crazy. Mm-hmm. She is crazy. It is thought that she was the mastermind behind a lot of Kelly's crimes, including successful bank robberies. Interesting. And here's the big one. Here's the big okay. crime. Okay. In July of 1933, the couple, they were just, you know, hanging around, just thinking, and, you know, they were like, you know what? I could really use some money right now. Let's go kidnap a wealthy businessman and hold him for ransom. This wealthy businessman was Charles Urschel. So one night, Kelly and two other men burst into the Urschel mansion with guns and found the family playing bridge. Aww. I know. Apparently, Kelly had his classic machine gun, and the other two had pistols. So they burst into the house, they threatened to kill everybody there, and they had, the Urschels had some guests over as well. They threatened to kill everybody there, they, I don't think that they did, but then they took Urschel and blindfolded him. Hmm. He remained blindfolded for the next eight days. Eight? Yes, eight. Eight days. Oh, poor guy. I know. They took Urschel to a ranch in Texas and demanded $200,000 ransom. A family friend of the Urschels paid the ransom money, actually, in $20 bills to a designated location in Kansas City on July 30th. Mm. And the following day, Urschel was released near Norman, Oklahoma. So they were kind of all over the place. They took him from Oklahoma, and then they brought him to Texas, and then they had the guy pay them in Kansas City, and then they were back in Oklahoma. Jeez. Kelly and Catherine were like, yes, we got away with it. That boy has no clue where he was. He was blindfolded the whole time. We got our money. We're going to run away now. (laughs) However, Urschel was a badass. He was a mastermind. Uh Uh-oh. And even though he was blindfolded, (laughs) he made it a point to listen to everything that was said around him. Listen to his surroundings. He counted his steps when he would get out of a car. And he would leave his own fingerprints everywhere. Nice. Anywhere that he could get them, he would leave his fingerprints. 
So after he was released, he obviously went right to the police. Yeah. And the information was very helpful to the FBI. And Urschel even managed to lead them to the ranch in Texas that he was taken to. And while they were there at the ranch when he led the FBI there, one of the men that kidnapped him was arrested. Oh. And this is when the nationwide search for Machine Gun Kelly began. Okay. So I think that whoever this man was that was arrested was like, yeah, it was Machine Gun Kelly and like Mm. gave a bunch of, you know. Yeah, it's like, don't take me. Don't take me. It wasn't me. But there was apparently like six to ten people involved in this. Okay. So it was a lot. Kelly and Catherine went on the run. They went through several different states. They both dyed their hair and maintained their very wealthy lifestyle while still in hiding. Several weeks went by, and they were like, you know what? I bet it's safe to go back to Memphis now. (laughs) Just a few weeks. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. They were like, you know what? It's been a few weeks. I bet everybody forgot that we kidnapped that guy. Totally forgot. Yeah. It's just not even a thought in anybody's mind anymore. So whenever they went back to Memphis, they stayed with a friend, John Titchener. And on the morning of September 26th, 1933, the Memphis police surrounded the Titchener house Mm. and violently forced their way in. Kelly was found still in his PJs and very hungover from the night before. Oh, God. Catherine was found still asleep in bed, and the couple was quickly arrested and flown to Oklahoma, where they both stood trial and both received life sentences. Wow. Yes. Each and every accomplice that was involved in this scheme was arrested and put in jail. Huh. Nice. The police did a very good job with this, and all with the help of Mr. Urschel, because that man's fantastic. Yeah. Kisses. very smart. I know. That's really clever of him. And to think you're in that situation where you're blindfolded and all these people around you, so you've got to be scared. Yeah. I wouldn't even know what to do. To have the mind to just try and stop that and just record everything you possibly can. Yeah, he was a very smart man. Yeah. Good for him. I hope he's doing well out there in the world. Probably not, but... If he's, you know, alive. He's probably not alive, but I hope he's resting peacefully if he's not. Yes. Catherine was transferred to a federal prison in Cincinnati, and Kelly was transferred to Leavenworth in Kansas. Okay. It was said that Kelly was very arrogant and constantly bragged that he knew how to escape, that he would break his wife out of prison, and they would be back together by Christmas. That's Hmm. what he would tell everybody. And those threats were taken seriously because this was a a big-time guy. Yeah. So they transferred him to Alcatraz in August of 1934, along with some of his accomplices. But while he was at Alcatraz, Warden Johnston said that he was a model prisoner. He said that he served... His time very quietly. He had several jobs. Johnston said that Kelly would get depressed when he received letters from his family and that he seemed to feel remorse for his crimes. Hmm. Kelly also wrote several apologetic letters to Urschel while he was in prison. And in these letters, he would apologize. He would feel very remorseful for what he had done. But he would also ask Urschel to help him with his case. That's... To get more time off. Weird. Yeah, Urschel never responded to any of those. Good. Good for him. He was like, no, I think I'm going to stay out of this. So that's part one. Oh, that's part one. That's part one. So we're going to stop there. We're going to stop right here. And in part two, we are going to talk more about more famous prisoners. We're going to talk about some escape attempts. Okay. And we're going to talk about the hauntings of Alcatraz, which I'm very excited about. (laughs) 
Of course there has to be hauntings. Of course. Yes. It wouldn't be an Abigail episode if there wasn't. I really want to go to Alcatraz someday. Well, maybe someday you can. Is it open? Or are we going to get there? We're going to get there in the next episode. I'm gonna, okay. We're going to talk a lot about it. All right, so that's part one. That's part one. That's what we got. Thank you, Abigail. You're welcome. I have more where that came from. <laughs> Thank you to everybody listening. Yes, we love you with all of our hearts. We love you so, we love much. You so much. You're our favorite people in the whole world. Yes. We would absolutely love if you would share with your friends. Leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Mm-hmm. Follow us on social media. Yes, we're on TikTok at Roadside Podcast, Instagram at Roadside Pod, and Facebook at Roadside Podcast. Go follow us. We love you. You can also email us. Yeah, email us any like recommendations. I want to know what people think. I would too. If they've been to like a cool place that they wanted us to talk about. Yeah, I would love that. So our I email would love is that too. roadsidepod at gmail.com if you want to email us your suggestions. Yeah, I would like that. Huh, that'd be cool. Yeah. And if you would love to support us as a patron, whoop whoop, Patreon. All five tiers now get bonus episodes. Oh yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. When we get bonus episodes. I'm really excited about these. They're going to be really fun. So you get to hear those if you're a patron. Please do it. Please, we love you. We need new we headphones. Love you. <laughs> yeah. So I do. can quit editing all the voices all the and cars. the outside and... of my window. Yeah. Yes. I'm like right on a major road. So you can yeah. hear every time a car drives by through this yes. uh, microphone. So when I edit, I have to... Remove all the traffic noise. I have to remove my voice on your track, your voice on my track. Yep. Ah, it's a lot. So it would be nice to so, get some headphones. Yeah. What? Huh? Did you just say something? No. Oh, it was a ghost. Must have been. Last night, I was sitting on the couch and I was, what was I doing? I don't remember. Oh, I might have been researching for our bonus episode and the light kept flicking. Oh, that's so scary. And I was like, okay, who are you? What do you want? And then it would stop. And then it would flick again. Yeah, that's the best way to get to know a ghost. You just talk to him. Nobody did anything, though. And then at, I had music playing. I swear to God, at one point, the light was flashing to the beat of the music. And I was like, oh, do you just <gasps> want to dance? That's kind of cool. <laughs> that's kind of cool. The ghost wanted to have a dance party. So I'm just wondering, do Brave I have a, in Janica's living room? Have I attracted a ghost now since we've been doing this? Maybe. You never know. Never know. Maybe I'll bring my I'll bring my tarot cards next time I'm at your house and we'll try to talk to your ghost. Okay, let's do it. Cool. All right. Well, that's it. Until next time. Freaking I don't remember it. I always forget Keep it. Keep finding. Keep the finding the thrill and the mysterious. Yes. Please. Do it. Do that. Go find the thrill. Yes. If you see a mysterious thing, go to it. Find the thrill in it because it's there. And then email us your thrilled, mysterious thing. Yes. Please. Okay. Okay. We love you. Bye. I love you. Mwah.